several years ago, I was discussing with a friend about traveling to Bhutan. It's a place I've wanted to go for a long time. The fellow I was talking to was a native. He was Bhutanese. And uh, he was living here. In fact, he was teaching at this school. He was an engineer. And he said, Rod, I'd love for you to go. I'd love for you to go and I'd love for you to do some Bible teaching. I was excited, but upon further reflection and discussion, I discovered that it's not so easy. I mean, like many closed countries, you, you have to find a sponsoring entity, someone upon whose person and work will, will vouch for you to gain entrance into the kingdom. And that's what it is. It's a kingdom. And so the government has these entities, these government-approved entities by the head of state that you have to apply for a visa through them and get approved through them in order to gain entry. But that's not the unusual part. The unusual part is not only that you are dependent upon them to get into the country, but then they remain with you during your entire stay as a quote-unquote tour guide that you can't leave. But they do guide you through. They see you through the entire journey until the end of the trip. And it's not unlike what we see in chapter 7 here in the book of Hebrews. I mean, I think we all get it as Christians that our entrance into the kingdom is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those things, his, his, his incarnation... His atonement, His death on the cross, His resurrection, those things are essential as the object of our faith for salvation, for entrance into the kingdom. And yet as Christians, I don't think we realize the important nature of understanding things for the journey to get there. You see, it's also His person and work that are important for our journey to get there. Our journey once we have entrance into the kingdom, once we are saved. Think about it this way. If understanding the object of our faith for salvation is who he is and what he did. He is God of very God. He is fully human. He was born of a virgin and he died on the cross and rose again. Dying in our place. If that's what's essential for salvation, guess what is also important for sanctification? Who he is now. He is our eternal high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And what does he do? What is his work? He intercedes for the church. So we, we understand how important these things are for salvation, but do we understand how important his current person and work are for sanctification? You see, who he is now and what he is doing now are those things that will see us through to the end of our journey. The church is on a journey, right? Oh, we're saved, we've got entrance into the kingdom, but we've got rough times ahead. And I don't think we realize that the more we understand about what he is doing, how he is interceding, 
what his role is as the eternal high priest, I don't think we understand that that is super, super important for us navigating the storms ahead. Amen? That, that's Hebrews chapter 7. If last week we saw the effectiveness of this new priesthood and the changes that resulted, specifically that there is a change in law and there's a change in longevity in the, in the high priesthood, this week we get to find out about his person and work as the new eternal premier high priest and how it is superior to anything we've seen before. Now why might this be important for those first readers? Well, remember, they're undergoing persecution, not only from Gentiles and, and Romans at this point, but also from family, friends, their former synagogues. They're getting it from all ends, and frankly, following Jesus, is, it's costing them a lot, more than they ever expected. Times are tough. Times are tough ahead. Maybe they should go back to what makes them feel good. Go back to the traditions, to the old priesthood. Go back to the things that will remove the discomfort, the persecution from their lives. The preacher here says, don't. Don't go back. The answer is not to turn away. The answer is not to become sluggish of hearing. The answer is not to drift. The answer is to draw near. Draw near to our great high priest. And the more we understand who he is and what he is doing, the easier it will be to navigate the storms of persecution. And so today, the title of the sermon is The Premier High Priest. And our timeless truth is realizing Jesus' person and work as our high priest will cause us to draw near in times of need. Let me say that again. Realizing Jesus' person and work as our high priest will cause us to draw near in times of need. Three points will guide our time. He's a promised high priest. He's a permanent high priest. And he's a perfect high priest. You can tell we're going to visit a Baptist church today. I've got the alliteration there. There'll be a poem at the end. So. Promised, permanent, and perfect. Easiest way to remember it, it is understanding these qualities of our high priest that will help us. I mean, I could stop the sermon right now and say, what are you afraid of? What is it in your walk with Christ that, that causes you the greatest amount of discomfort? Where are you looking for direction? If you're like me, this is the last thing on my list. It doesn't pop into my mind to think of Jesus as the eternal high priest who is daily interceding for the church. I just don't think about it. Why? Because I haven't studied this book like I should. I haven't worked the muscle memory, memory of, of going there in my mind. Oh, when it comes to salvation, we could talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection all day long. I'm there, man. I know my soteriology. But when it comes to enduring tough times, I don't innately go 
to his high priesthood. I don't innately drop to my knees with the understanding that he takes this poor, lisping, stammering tongue and he takes my prayers and he shapes them and presents them to the Father. Do you think about it that way? You know, if I did, would it change things? Who do we call upon to help us? We get to call upon the God of the universe. It is Hebrews that tells us that it is Jesus who spoke the worlds into existence. The Creator is the Redeemer. And this is so important for a steady faith on the mountainous journey ahead. Let's look at our first one. Promised high priest. Verse 20. And insomuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And you see that block lettering? What does that come from? Old Testament. Again, he uses Psalm 110. That's his go-to passage. Now, what do we see here over and over again? If we're just making our Bible study method observations, we see a word over and over again. What is it? Oath. Oath. 20. 21. Oath. But he with an oath. And then it's all based upon the Lord has sworn you see, Levitical high priests, priests according to the Aaronic line, did not fulfill their position because of an oath. It was because of what was in the law and because of their lineage. It was from the books of Moses and because of their genealogy. The high priestly position was filled according to Exodus 28 and 29. Listen here as I read. Exodus 28, verse 1, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. Chapter 29, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and you shall make them of fine wheat flour. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water, and so on and so forth. So because of instructions, because of commandment in the law of Moses, and a ceremony of consecration, that is how you became a priest. And you remained a priest either until you died or until your tenure was up, which I think was a max of 30 years. Don't get me wrong, this is a big deal. There weren't exactly a lot of high priests running around. There was one at a time. But Jesus' high priesthood, Jesus' high priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, had a much higher requirement. It was a priesthood on a whole nother level. It wasn't because of what was written in the book as a commandment. It wasn't because of a ceremony. It was because of the very 
promise of Almighty God. I mean, to put this in just a, a really poor illustration, this is the difference between someone filling a job based on a description in a company manual that you fill out online and happen to get, and the CEO calling you into his office and making a personal promise to you to give you this position for a job which you could never lose. This is a whole nother level. So right off the bat, we have a, a new kind of priest. You say, well, that's neat, that's interesting, Rod. I get it, but what does it mean for God's people? Well, a whole nother level of priest means a whole nother level of mediator. If he has a higher requirement to get in, he also serves a higher function. He doesn't just approach God Almighty once a year in the Holy of Holies with great trepidation. He doesn't just come into the metaphorical throne room of God behind a curtain one ceremony a year. He lives there. He lives in the throne room of Almighty God. He talks with Him daily. Jesus is not our high priest because of some regulation. He was chosen, appointed by the infallible, unchangeable, sworn testimony, sworn promise of God. A promised priesthood means that the new covenant of which we are all part of cannot change. It is unalterable. It is a done deal. Which means not only is our salvation as a result of the cross guaranteed, but so is our sanctification. Why? Because our priest is alive and he's in the throne room and he is interceding. It's as good as done. It is guaranteed. In fact, look at verse 22. <clears throat> so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. That word, the guarantee, or more correctly, guarantor, is used only here in the New Testament. And it's a very specific word. It's a, it's a business legal term indicating an instrument like a bond. Something used to guarantee, to make sure someone will show up or a promise will be fulfilled. And he is responsible. It's the, the earnest money on a contract. It's the security bond to make sure that the word is fulfilled. You know, when I used to do USAID work, um, we, we put a lot of time into bidding a particular job, um, figured out not only uh, pricing, but structure, transportation. We had to get things halfway around the world and deal with different people. And we would put all this work into it, and sometimes we would be awarded the bid, awarded a contract. But do you realize that contract, that order, if you will, would become null and void within about a week if I didn't immediately put a performance bond down. If I didn't immediately go to the bank and say, I need you to give me about 15% of what this contract is worth, and I need to give it to the government in case I default on it. That's a lot of security. That's a lot of guarantee, and yet it pales in comparison to the guarantee or that Jesus is. He is the guarantee of the Word of God. 
Isn't that crazy? It's not like you would need a guarantee for the promise of God. But he is the guarantee of a better covenant. There is no greater assurance for a church in the midst of persecution. Oh, we already have entrance into the kingdom. But now Jesus, as our current high priest, he's going to make sure we actually get there and stay the course. So if you're one of these first century Jewish Christians, and you're reading this, it's like the words are, it's like they're jumping off the page. This is a sermon. Have you ever read something like that, where you, you, you start out, you're reading it, and it's kind of informational, and then after you get into it a little while, you can hear the preacher preaching. And then it gets more intense as you hear the preacher preaching to you personally. Can I tell you what this probably sounds like to the first readers who are going through this, who are feeling this intensity, who are feeling the pull back to their their former family and friends and tradition? Because frankly, to go that direction and follow Christ is just too tough. So they're reading this. This is what it feels like, I believe. Saul, you're Saul in this case. Saul, you're worried about the tough road ahead of you. So you think that going back to temple and a human high priest will help? We've had 83 priests. None of them helped. They're all dead. And the guy who's currently the high priest, at this time it was Joseph ben Simon, He's as old as dirt in Jerusalem. What can they do? But Saul, Jesus is alive. That's the sense you get. Jesus is alive. He was promised this position by God Almighty, and God doesn't break His word, does He? No one, no Roman official, no Gentile pagan, no Judaizer, no aunt or uncle will ever be able to snatch you out of high priest Yeshua's hand. That's what this feels like. I mean, even this parody is meant to make you think that they really felt the pain. And they really were tempted to just kind of sit down on the track a little bit. Look, there's not a one of us here who has gone through a period of our life where we were fired up about Christ. We were having our daily devotionals. We were involved in missions and things like that. And then times got tough. And we missed a Sunday or two. And it became easier to miss another one. And to back up a little bit. And to rationalize to ourselves. Well, I know I can't work for my salvation, so it's not really that important. Plus, I've logged in so much time. Right? And it starts out with a small drift. I can still see the boat. It's a small drift. Then over time, that drift becomes a daily, daily thing. And then we can't see it anymore. Drifting has a destination. So he's preaching at them in their language. He says, Jesus has not only promised the position, but it's a permanent one. Look at our second point. 
Verse 23, the former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, but Jesus, those are just two great words. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. I'm going to call roll here for just a moment. If you're here, just go ahead and answer here. We're not going to be embarrassed by this, right? Aaron, but not this one, so you don't say here. Eleazar, Phineas, Abishua, Buki, Yuzi, Eli. I, I can keep going. That 83 number I gave you earlier wasn't pulled out of thin air. Josephus, the historian, records 83 high priests from the time of Aaron until Titus Vespasian destroyed the temple in AD 70. 83 high priests. You know what the commonality between all of them is, other than the fact they're Levitical from the tribe of Levi and they're men? They're all dead. They're all dead. Dead men do not sacrifice, mediate, offer biblical counseling, encourage the discouraged. Why? Because they're dead. Food for worms. They may have been great men. They may have done a lot during their 30-year tenure. They ain't doing nothing now. And they're certainly not helping the church in the midst of a storm. They cannot guide you on your journey, shore up your faith, and they certainly can't pray for you. But Jesus, maybe that should have been the title of the sermon, but Jesus, you only need Jesus as your high priest. Look at verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save, what? Forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't you wonder what it must have been like for that First young man or young woman at the first day of atonement. Such a, such a grand occasion. Such an amazing, amazing picture. The new tabernacle. Aaron in all of his high priestly garbs. Covered in blood. I, I, I mean, I can really imagine, not just one person, but many people saying... Aaron, that was the most amazing service, most amazing ceremony I've, I've ever experienced. You've never had anything like this in Egypt. This was, this was phenomenal. I, I think I understand it, these pictures. And I can hear Aaron saying, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mark your calendar. We're going to do the same thing next year. And that young man or young woman saying, what do you mean next year? What? I mean, I, I, I get the picture. We, we, our, our sins have been covered. You sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. God has accepted the sacrifice. I, I, I get it. Why, why, why next year? And Aaron's saying, because it, it's, it's not permanent. It's a picture. Why, how, how long is this going to go on? Well, it's going to continue year after year. 
Well, but you're getting old. What happens when you die? Well, the next guy will pick up where I left off. And you could just imagine them scratching their heads and without saying it audibly, in their heads saying, so you can't guarantee anything. But Jesus. But Jesus is able to save forever. Why? Because he lives forever. Now that would be enough. But look at the very next phrase. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What kind of God would love us enough not only to provide a way for his treasonous creation to come into relationship by sending his own son to take our penalty and absorb the just wrath of God that we might be saved. That's crazy. To do all that to purchase a bride that didn't want you in the first place. That blows my mind. But then when I read this, it's so much further. I can't even handle it. Then why would he continue? Why would he live to make intercession for us? That's unreal. And just in, in case you think it's clinical, let me remind you what's already been said in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jesus lives now to make intercession for us? It gives a whole new meaning to Jesus loves you, doesn't it? Jesus loves you, this I know. How do you know? Read the book of Hebrews. He lives he lives, he finds his joy, we might say, in, in, in making intercession for us. I would think there's got to be a lot of better things to do. That says far more about him than it does about us. Kent Hughes describes this picture so well. He says, how does he intercede for us? He, along with the Holy Spirit, takes our feeble prayers cleans them up, ennobles them, and presents them to the Father. So how does having a high priest that lives forever and lives to intercede for us change how we, the modern-day church, view the journey home? Well, I want you to think about it in terms of your but-what-abouts. You know what I mean by that? Your but-what-abouts? Your but-what-abouts are things like... Um, well, let me preface it by saying, I think we all get it that, that Jesus is, is, uh, is sovereign in our, in our justification, right? That we were, we were elected and drawn and given faith and repentance, 
Christ paid the penalty on the cross. We get it. Our salvation is totally what the Puritans would call monergistic, totally of God. We get that, right? We also get that the glorification is totally, totally of God, right? When we die, we can't do anything. But it is God who does the glorifying. And I think we understand that, that sanctification, at least mentally, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we forget that second part, for it is what? God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so we have a tendency to think of us as between these goalposts of God's sovereignty, and we're like orphans left by our parents at the bus station. And we got to somehow work it out to get through this persecution. We got to figure things out. We got we to find the right answers. And it usually shows itself in what abouts. Well, I know this is true that God's sovereign, God's good. But what about if I lose my job? But what about if my friends don't like me anymore? What about if I lose my, my popularity or my social status? Let's ramp it up. What about if my husband quits coming to church with me and mocks me? What about if my kids punt the faith and turn against me? But what about you fill in the blank? If we're to answer the question, what does having a high priest that lives forever, forever and lives to intercede for us, what difference does that make now we have to kill the whatabouts? Right? Because the whatabouts are not innocuous little doubts in our mind. They're an affront to the Word of God. They're an affront to the character of God. Because you know what whatabouts are based upon? Chance. There is no chance with God. Chance is not a person. Chance is not a thing. As R.C. Sproul used to say, chance has no legs. There is no chance. In the same way, Jesus is sovereign in our justification and our glorification. He is sovereign in the church's sanctification. Jesus is at the helm, and there is no chance on the horizon. Which means there is no whatabouts. As Aaron said it so well this morning, that means that our worries are what abouts are undermining the sovereign goodness of God and us trying to take control because there is no chance. Let's look at our last description. It's not just his current work in which we trust for sanctification. It's his person, his personhood. He is the perfect high priest. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He is quintessential perfection. Though he can identify with our pain and temptations, he is without sin. And he is so far above us, there is no need for him to offer sacrifices first or daily. In fact, he himself is the Passover lamb. 
the perfect sacrifice. Rather than be one of those high priests like Aaron that was covered in the blood of the animal that he just slid open, you got to imagine what that looks like. All that white gets covered in blood. He's the one that is hauling the carcass off. Why? Because he's got to make a sacrifice for himself first before he ever makes one for Israel. And then even then he's got to do it again next year because the blood of bulls and goats do not satisfy. But Jesus, on the other hand, there was no more need for another day of atonement. When he says, it is finished, that day was done. There are no more days of atonement. They're done. Don't come back next year. We're not going to do this again. Listen to Paul, Romans chapter 8. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You say, oh, that's great. Even Paul mentions what the author of Hebrews says. But can I tell you why this matters? Let me read you the very next verse in Romans chapter 8. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? You see, Jesus' intercession, which is inextricably linked as his person and work, he died on the cross, he rose again, he is interceding, Mary's perfect with what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will persecution, will famine, or distress? Why is it important that we understand the current person work of Jesus Christ? Because there will be persecution and famine and distress. And it is because he lives that we will see tomorrow. Right? Watch as he brings it all together in verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Oath made perfect forever. He is unrivaled in his superiority. He is our promised permanent and perfect high priest. He is able to complete that which he has begun because he is at his post. And he's making sure we get home. I've had the privilege the last couple of weeks of spending a few days each week with Saudi and Denise teaching theology as best I can in a very broken Spanish. So I teach them what I know theologically, and they correct my grammar and pronunciation, which is very humbling. We've been talking a lot about the three tiers of understanding, the three tiers of doctrine. That top tier being what every Christian must understand or must not reject, you might say, in order to be a Christian. Who Jesus is, what he has done, is at the top of the list. But then we talked about this second section, which has very important things. 
very important biblical things. And while not every Christian is going to understand the high priesthood of Jesus or that he daily intercedes for his church, it is so important because it allows us to persevere. It allows us to carry on. And we need to realize that when the skies seem darkest, the lights in the throne room are on. And Jesus is at work. And he is interceding for us in the midst of divinely ordained trials so that we will end our journey at home. And so if we're going to apply this, we've got to be willing to go through the exercise. Because he was willing to put these Jewish Christians through the exercise. If Jesus is the promised, permanent, perfect high priest, the one that we should go to when we're in trials, the throne that we should draw near to, and these guys were not doing it, what were they doing? Where were they looking for comfort and direction in the midst of persecution? Well, they were looking in what wasn't promised. They were looking at the old priesthood. They were looking at what wasn't permanent. The old traditions, the old law. And they were looking for what wasn't perfect. Repetitive sacrifices. Priests that died. How are we guilty? We don't do those things, right? But are we guilty of looking for direction and wisdom in that which is not promised? Meaning not the word of God. When times get tough, do we not go to his word? When times are tough, do we not go to the son of God which is permanent? Do we not trust in that which is perfect, the finished work of Christ? You see, to put it in plain speak, and we're all guilty of this, when we find ourselves between the hammer and the anvil, we don't go to the throne room of God by calling out and drawing near to our great high priest. We go for worldly wisdom, and we go for worldly comfort. And that makes us an awful lot like these Hebrew Christians. So the text looks complicated, but it's not really that deep. But it is that hard. Let me leave you with a couple of statements here. If we say that we trust Christ for salvation, then we must Trust him for sanctification. If we don't draw near in the daily things, then we will eventually drift from the main thing. The faith that saves is the faith that sanctifies. So too, the Savior that saves is the Savior that sanctifies. Amen? What does it mean? It means we don't just trust in Jesus for salvation trust in Jesus for sanctification.